Hello and welcome to The More the Merrier with Donna G. Today's show is audiobooks from the Toronto Public Library and it will focus on the queer community or the 2S LGBTQI community. I had a plan when I first started the, to put together this show but um, something kept leading me in another direction. So the show that you're going to hear today is is curated by where my mind went. Um, my apologies if uh, you are not represented in this hour. Please reach out to me and let me know about some more audiobooks that are available through a free um, audio book link that I can then share with my listeners. I wanted to make sure that these books were free um, to borrow and with the Toronto Public Library system all you need is a library card to do so. So let's get started. Oh a caveat, Um, I do have, there is mention of uh, sexual violence, sexual abuse, unsurviving in this program. So this is for, uh, some of it is for teenagers because they need to hear these words too because uh, they have the thoughts. But I just wanted to put that out there. My first author, Joshua Whitehead, is going to start uh, with uh, a phone number and a website for Indigenous peoples. I'm going to add for the people in the Greater Toronto area, I'm going to add the Distress Centers of Greater Toronto uh, to that. The website is dcogt.com, dcogt.com. The organization that Joshua Whitehead mentions, Hope for Wellness, is hopeforwellness.ca. The Distress Centers of Greater Toronto. The phone number for the Distress Centers of Greater Toronto is 416-408-4357. They're available in English 24-7. The multilingual lines are available from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. only, and they provide assistance in English, of course, Cantonese, Mandarin, Portuguese, Spanish, Hindi, Punjabi, and Urdu. Again, dcogt.com for Distress Centers of Greater Toronto and hopeforwellness.ca for Indigenous people in need of help. Penguin Random House Canada presents Making Love with the Land by Joshua Whitehead. Read for you by the author. For Dustin and for every person who has touched profound pain. If you or anyone you know is in immediate crisis, please reach out to Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310, available 24-7. By the way, I forgive you. Brandy Carlisle, by the way, I forgive you. No one asked this of me but I wanted to keep watch of the dying everywhere so I could figure out how to care for a bleeding sentence. Billy Ray Belcourt, A History of My Brief Body. Borrow time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. Cormac McCarthy, The Road. 
Who names the Rez Dog Rez? I am reading Ocean Vong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, and I let the words find me because the body always knows better than the mind does. Muscles remember, they witness like trees. Riddles etch disease, and I am weeping willow, crying seeds and dripping saline from my hair. This is how I got my name, you know. Or consider how the cane beams of trees will warp a bullet civilly, make room for the wound in the structure of their being, crown themselves with flora, and I am singing starling. Ocean asks me, who will be lost in the story we tell ourselves? Who will be lost in ourselves? A story, after all, is a kind of swallowing. Feel the roots of me, an ecosystem of pain. I am anthropic in the desert of my being. Do you feel how much the winds have dried my tendrils? Feed me, water me, nurture me. I would be lying if I didn't say I too want to swallow you in this story I call essay. Essay I call livelihood. Life I pretend to call my own. I dog-ear ocean's page and make an animal of story. I am looking for a wilderness in the act of being wild. I ear a res dog. I haven't seen you in a dog's age, by which I mean I haven't seen myself in years. I am sitting on the hills of Dover, a space I rely on too heavily these days. The afternoon sun licking my shoulders, masseuse to the marks that stretch from the child me who still fits inside me, and I have only just begun to find him again, that wild ancestral dream. People walk past me, staring. There I sit alone, barefoot, feet stroking the prairie grass and thistles, pricks not knowing the width of my souls. I cannot be harmed in this moment, by which I mean I cannot afford to be. I puff a cigarette, curtail the smoke around the width of my neck, which remembers the lace of fingers around it. I let the smoke a finger burn trap, away the oils of your pads, which see deep into me. I listen to Maggie Rogers back in my body on repeat, tilting my cheeks to the sun, let Pisim kiss them into roses, and I am a blooming flower. You a shrike to my stamens. I hold myself as if I were a babe. Bare legs with thin hairs wrapped up into my chest. I a papoose. As for those who stop and gawk at a lone Indian sitting in the long grass, the other you of this story texts me. They're just stunned by your beauty in the sun. I tell you that if they are... It's entirely for me today. I am majesty, and my body is a living cornucopia. I eat my own seeds, which isn't to say I consume myself for once, but rather that I wilt my pain into nutrient, and I am Ouroboric. My hair, which I model on Steve Harrington, flails in the wind to the point where I look medusin in this Mokinstis light. I look at the yous who have harmed me in ways big or small, and I will you all to stone, carry you like gall in the bladder of my being, and expunge you in the pee of Making Love with the Land by Joshua Whitehead is a national bestseller, 
a finalist for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction. The description reads, much-anticipated nonfiction from the author of the Giller Longlisted, Gigi Shortlisted, and Canada Reads winning novel, Johnny Appleseed. In the last few years following the publication of his debut novel, Johnny Appleseed, Joshua Whitehead has emerged as one of the most exciting and important new voices on Turtle Island. Now, in this first nonfiction work, Whitehead brilliantly explores indigeneity, explores indigeneity, queerness, and the relationship between body, language, and land through a variety of genres, essay, memoir, notes, confession. Making Love with the Land is a startling, heart-wrenching look at what it means to live as a queer indigenous person, quote-unquote, in the rapture, between identities. In sharp, surprising, unique pieces, a number of which have already won awards, Whitehead illuminates this particular moment in which both Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples are navigating new and old ideas about, quote-unquote, the land. He asks, what is our relationship and responsibility towards it? And how has the land shaped our ideas, our histories, our very bodies? Here is an intellectually thrilling, emotionally captivating love song, a powerful revelation about the library of stories land and body hold together, waiting to be unearthed and summoned into word. I haven't read any of Joshua Whitehead's work. I didn't read Johnny Appleseed, but from this sample of Making Love with the Land, his the way he puts words together and his metaphors really speak to me and it's something that um, I would sit down and listen to as he is also the reader of his work. So um, again, Making Love with the Land by Joshua Whitehead. The descriptions that you will hear as part of this show are those provided on the website for the Toronto Public Library and are not my own words. Um, I have edited some of the audio just to tighten up where there are silences because while silences are natural when you're listening to the audiobook, silences on the radio uh, count as dead air and people will begin to wonder um, if the show is on or not. So that's the reason why. Also wanted to add my contact information. If you know of another free source for audiobooks, um, my contact information, www.ciut.fm. Click on The More the Merrier, 1 to 2 p.m., Sundays, 1 to 2. Let's continue with the show. If you're just joining us, the focus is audiobooks in this Pride Month. Rebent Sinner. Written and narrated by Ivan Coyote. Dedication. This book is dedicated to Sarah McDougall for showing me her artist's heart. She reminds me every day of why. Chapter 1. Blood. My gran used to smoke the cheap cigarettes, John Player Specials, Craven A. Menthols, Number 7s. 
She'd buy them by the carton and squirrel them away in the closet in her bedroom. My uncles would swipe one from her open pack on the kitchen table and cough and stare down at the red cherry between their fingertips and say, Fuck, Mom, these are awful. Why can't you get du Maurier's? Export A's. She would make that noise with her tongue and tuck the rest of the pack into her purse. She had one of those little cigarette machines, too, where you buy the filters and tubes and the tobacco in a tin, and she and my aunts would sit around the table and stuff little wads of tobacco into the groove in the machine and slide it back and forth, and a cigarette would pop out the end. You had to get the perfect amount of tobacco in there to get it to burn just right, but look, look how much cheaper it is, they would all say, like they were trying to convince each other of something none of them truly believed. My gran unknowingly smoked her last cigarette on a Friday afternoon, and she broke her hip that night when her foot fell off the footstool during jeopardy and her heel hit the floor at a weird angle. She always said that new hardwood floor was easier to sweep than the carpet ever was to keep vacuumed. She was hospitalized right away, went into a coma, and died the following Wednesday without ever really waking up again. She was almost 90 years old. It all happened so fast, but hey, at least she never had to quit smoking, everybody said. Dear favorite uncle, I'm going to have to insist you stop using my dead name. I changed it in 1993. That was more than 25 years ago. I'm afraid I just can't get used to it is no longer an acceptable excuse. Lesser uncles are gaining on you. I still love you, but collect yourself. I'm coming home in 15 days. I will come and see you in a new place. I look like your sons did when they were my age. I look like your grandson, and his son looks like me. You might be confused, but I know you will recognize the blood in me, your blood in me. I will touch your super soft hands and marvel at all those blue maps on the backs of them. What should I get you for your 97th birthday, I will ask you. What? You'll say. Your birthday, I will repeat louder. My what? You will say. Oh, that. I'm good. I have everything I need right here. These people, they take good care of me, you'll say. Last month I was home in the Yukon, and I went to visit my 97-year-old grandmother in the nursing home where she has been for the last year since her accident. It had been a few months since I had seen her. It was about 8 p.m., dark and cold outside. The heat was cranked up inside the nursing home. I was sweating in my unzipped parka as I walked down the maze of hallways through the dining hall and into her room. She was asleep, and my heart twisted in my chest at the sight of her, asleep on her side in her hospital bed, her nightdress pulled up to reveal her unbearably thin and bruised legs and her diaper. She woke up as I sat in the rolling chair next to her bed. It's you, she cried out with joy and surprise. Look at you, my beautiful boy. She sat up and patted the mattress beside her withered thighs, pulled her nightdress down a little, but not all the way. I sat beside her. The plastic sheet on the mattress crinkled under us both. My beautiful, beautiful boy, you're so handsome. You've always been. So handsome. I'm so glad you are here. 
She reached out a pencil-like arm and pulled my head down to what was left of her once very ample chest. She stroked my head and cupped my cheek. She was never very physically affectionate before, but she's changing. My Uncle Rob had warned me on the phone months ago. She's slipping a little mentally, too, he had said. She is getting confused easily, not recognizing people some days. Don't take it personally if she thinks you're one of the staff or something. I don't know about you, but that's something I would love to keep reading. And that is Rebent Sinner by Ivan Coyote. And the description reads that the book takes on the patriarchy and the political, as well as the intimate and the personal, in these beguiling and revealing stories of what it means to be trans and non-binary today, at a time in their life when they must carry the burden of heartbreaking history with them, while combating those who would misgender them or deny their existence. These stories span 30 years of tackling turfs, legislatures, and bathroom police, sure, but there is joy and pleasure and triumph to be found here too, as Ivan pays homage to personal heroes like Leslie Feinberg and Farron, while gently guiding younger trans folk to prove to themselves that there is a way out of the darkness. Rebent Sinner is the work of an accomplished artist whose, pa- whose plain truths about their experience will astound readers with their utter, breathtaking humanity. And this is a book that I'm definitely interested in pursuing. Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir by Kai Cheng Tom. This is a Metonymy Press audiobook narrated by A. Almeida. For my family, blood, and chosen. And for fierce femmes, fighters, haunted girls, and liars everywhere. Dangerous Stories I don't believe in safe spaces. They don't exist. I do, however, believe in dangerous stories. The kind that swirl up from inside you when you least expect it. Like the voice of a mad angel whispering of the revolution you are about to unleash. Stories that bend and twist the air as they crackle off your tongue. Making you shimmer with glamour so that everyone around you hangs onto your every intoxicating word. The kind of stories that quiet mad girls dream of to bring themselves comfort after crying themselves to sleep at night. That made your poor, starving grandfather cross an entire ocean in search of the unbelievable riches someone once told him were waiting on the other side. The kind of story that doesn't wait for you to invite it to enter, but bursts through the door of your rat-infested house like a glittering wind, hungry, hungry to snatch up the carpet and scatter your papers and smash every single plate in the kitchen. That surges howling up the battered stairs to blast the stained sheets off your filthy bed and sweep your secrets out of the closet and send them shrieking outside, overjoyed to be finally set free. Where are those kinds of stories about trans girls like you and me? The other day, I was watching some post-sex television 
when a beautiful white trans woman in a flowy white organza gown appeared on the screen. She was making a speech. Everything about her was very white, like she was about to be buried and crushed into a diamond. She was already a multi-millionaire celebrity from before she came out, and when she did, everyone made a big deal about it. Then she got the surgery, and now she's getting an upstanding Good Samaritan Pillar of the Community Award for, like, being brave or whatever. Which is actually pretty cool, I guess, because good for her, you know? Though I will admit to being just the teeniest bit jealous, because I have always wanted a flowy dress like that. But I'm not hating on her for being rich or famous or white or anything, Not much, anyway. No. What really works me up is the way that this whole story is being told. Everyone look at this poor little trans girl, desperate for a fairy godmother, doctor, to give her boobs and a vagina and a pretty face and wear nice dresses. Save the trans girls. Save the whales. Put them in a zoo. It's actually a very old archetype that trans girl stories get put into. This sort of tragic, plucky little orphan character who is just supposed to suffer through everything and wait. And if you're good and brave and patient and white and rich enough, then you get the big reward. Which is that you get to be just like everybody else who is white and rich and boring. And then you marry the prince or the football player, and live boringly ever after. We're like Cinderella, waiting to go to the ball. Like the Little Mermaid, getting her tail surgically altered and her voice removed, so that she can walk around on land. Those are the stories we get these days. Or, you know, ones where we're dead. Where are all the stories about little, swarthy-skinned robber trans girls waving tiny knives made of bone? About trans teenage witches with golden eyes who cut out their own hearts and lock them in boxes so that awful guys on the internet will never break them again? About trans girls who lost their father in the war and their mother to disease and who go forth to find where death lives and make him give them back? Looking at the ivory face of the trans lady on the TV, I decided then and there. And that's where Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars by Kai Cheng Tom stops in the sample that is offered by the Toronto Public Library. And this is a story, the description reads, a haunted young girl who happens to be a kung fu expert and pathological liar runs away from a depressive city where the sky is always gray in search of love and sisterhood and finds herself in a magical place known only as the Street of Miracles. There, she is quickly adopted into a vigilante gang of glamorous warrior femmes called Lipstick Lacerators, whose mission is to scar the street of violent men and avenge murdered trans women everywhere. But when disaster strikes... Can our intrepid heroine find the truth within herself in order to protect her new family and heal her broken heart? 
You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G, and I'm focused on 2S LGBTQI books, audiobooks in particular, on this edition of The More the Merrier. These books contain mature themes, and in some instances, you will hear some swearing, um, minimal use of the F word, and I've included them so that you have an idea of what it is you're going to be listening to or reading if you decide to get the ebook or the paper book. Um, you need to know what to expect, so self-censor, please as you listen to what you like and what you don't like. Again, these books are available through the Toronto Public Library. Little Fish was a finalist in the Carol Shields Winnipeg Book Award, a Globe and Mail Best Book of the Year, and winner of Amazon Canada First Novel Award, a Lambda Literary Award, and Firecracker Award for Fiction. The description in the Toronto Public Library reads... It's the dead of winter in Winnipeg, and Wendy Reimer, a 30-year-old trans woman, feels like her life is frozen in place. When her Oma passes away, Wendy receives an unexpected phone call from a distant family friend with a startling secret. Wendy's Opa, grandfather, a devout Mennonite farmer, might have been transgender himself. At first, she dismisses this revelation, but as Wendy's life grows increasingly volatile, she finds herself aching for lost pieces of her opa's truth. Can Wendy unravel the mystery of her grandfather's world and reckon with the culture that both shaped and rejected her? She's determined to try. Alternately warm-hearted and dark-spirited, desperate and mirthful, Little Fish explores the winter of discontent in the life of one transgender woman as her past and future become irrevocably entwined. The following sample that I'm about to play does contain some mature themes and use of the F word. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Little Fish by Casey Plett. Read for you by A. Almeida. This is a Bespeak Audio Editions book. Dedication for Doug. Who else? Praying was much like doing housework. It was too easy to think that nothing had been accomplished unless you kept a record. And like housework, where you repeated the same chores over and over, you had to keep praying for the same things over and over. Sandra Birdsell, The Missing Child I don't think anyone really knows how they look. Lexi Sanfino November Zero The night before her Oma died, Wendy was in a booth at the bar with Lila, Raina, and Sophie. It was 11 p.m., and they were all tipsy. Sophie was saying, Age is completely different for trans people. The way we talk about age is not how cis people talk about age. You mean that thing, said Wendy, where our age is also how long we've been out or on hormones or whatever? Or do you mean that thing, said Lila, where we don't age as much because we die sooner? Both those things, yes, Sophie said. But there's more. There's much more. Think of how hormones preserve you. Look, 
We could all pass for 21 if we wanted to. Fuck, I met a lady in New York who was 60 and been on hormones for decades. I swear she barely looks older than us. One sec, she said as she flagged down the waitress and they all ordered another. For the guys too, hey? said Lila. My boyfriend gets carded all the time. He's 34, man. I'm younger than him. Exactly, said Sophie. And yet not just that. Are you giving us the latest from Twitter, Sophie? said Raina. Fuck off, Sophie snorted into her empty bottle. Wendy couldn't tell if she'd laughed or was actually upset. You are kind of our link to the trans girl internet, said Wendy. Sophie made an exasperated ah sound. This is something I've thought of for a while. Can I go on? Is that okay with you? Apologies, said Raina. Please. Okay, she went on. I don't just mean the difference in how long trans people live, and I don't just mean in the sense that we have two kinds of age, but the difference with transsexual age is what can be expected from you. Cis people have so many benchmarks for a good life that go by age. You're talking about the wife, the kids, the dog, Wendy said. More than that. And also, yes, that. It didn't stop being important, said Sophie. Cis people always have timelines. I mean, I know not every cis person has that life, but what are the cis people in my life doing? What are they doing in your life? Versus what the trans people in your life are doing. On a macro level, ask yourself that. Is that just cis people or is it straight people? Said Lila. Yeah, maybe, said Sophie. I just mean how mainstream society conceives of age doesn't apply to us. I swear it doesn't. The waitress came back with the round. Thanks, ladies, she said. I wonder if cis people think about their past in the same way we do, Raina said suddenly. How do we think about our past, said Wendy. And Raina said, hmm. Well, said Sophie, if you want news from the trans girl internet. But then another waitress dropped a tray and some jokers in the bar cheered, and Wendy got up to pee anyway and sat sipping from a Mickey of whiskey in the bathroom, calmly thinking. Penguin Random House Canada presents We Have Always Been Here by Samra Habib Read for you by Parmita Vand Even the most incorrigible maverick has to be born somewhere. He may leave the group that produced him. He may be forced to. But nothing will efface his origins, the marks of which he carries with him everywhere. James Baldwin Author's Note Names of some of the subjects have been changed to protect their identity. 1. We both had shaved heads. Although the reason for mine was that a week earlier my barber had discovered head lice before giving me my monthly bowl cut... I suspect her reason was more exciting. I couldn't have been older than five when I saw her, but I can still vividly recall her face. My eyes fixed on it as honking trucks zipped by and three different koalis blared from the shops behind me. 
My mother likes to tell the story of how intently I would focus on the flickering television screen, the only one on our street in Lahore, while she nursed me. She would turn me around in an attempt to protect my eyes, but I always managed to swivel my head toward the screen. She would be the first to tell you. I've always been drawn to action. My dad had parked the car in front of the shops in Liberty Market as my parents searched for last-minute Eid dresses for my sister and me. I always hated the muted colors my mother chose. Grays the color of concrete or washed-out browns that reminded me of Ovaltine. As I waited in the back seat, I found myself drawn to the woman with the shaved head. Something about the spontaneity of her movements and the ease with which she rested her hand on her matte black motorcycle captivated me. She was probably closer in age to my mother, who was in her mid-twenties at the time, but the similarities ended there. I had never seen a woman laugh so freely in public and be so comfortable in her skin while socializing with men and women, as if that were a regular occurrence for women in Pakistan. Eventually, she noticed my little face interrogating her from afar and smiled before shifting her attention back to a conversation with her friend. I seemed to be the only one fascinated by her. My younger sister continued to talk to herself, or maybe to me, who can say, in the back seat. Soon the woman was hiking up her black shalwar and adjusting her dupatta, securing it tightly so that her breasts were modestly covered, almost like donning armor before entering battle. She sped off on her motorcycle and joined the busy night-before-eed traffic. I've only ever been surrounded by women who didn't have the blueprint for claiming their lives. There were my aunts, who would never be caught socializing without their husbands present, certainly not publicly. They couldn't drive their cars without their husbands, let alone ride a motorcycle. And there was my mother, who was notified of her own name change only when her wedding invitations arrived from the printer. She stared at one for a few moments, wondering if my father had changed his mind and was marrying someone else instead. Without consulting her, he had decided that Yasmin would be a more suitable and elegant name for his wife than Frida. It was one of the first signs that her identity was disposable. Her free will was up for grabs, available to be stenciled over by my father and perhaps even by her children. Her role was to be a pious wife and an attentive mother. Being a sacrificial lamb meant a place would be reserved for her in heaven. Even if it meant that her life would be hell, surely Allah would see her sacrifice and allow her into Janat, the prized heaven. I don't know much about my father's life before he met my mother, but I'd heard stories of him hitchhiking through Iran in the 1970s and working as a dishwasher in Hamburg for racist restaurant owners and coming close to death several times over the course of his travels. I'd look with curiosity at all the young Pakistani men in the black and white photographs from Istanbul, remnants of a life he's too ashamed to talk about. Years later, he would insist that my brother keep his hair short and respectful. Yet in those early photos, which showed traces of a life full of adventures, long, thick layers and... And that was Samra Habib's We Have Always Been Here shortlisted for the 2020 Edna Stabler Award for Creative Nonfiction. It was a national bestseller, 2020 Lambda Literary Award winner, 
and one of Book Riot's 100 Most Influential Queer Books of All Time. And it was Canada Reads winner in 2020. And the description reads, how do you find yourself when the world tells you that you don't exist? Samra Habib has spent most of their life searching for the safety to be themselves. As an Ahmadi Muslim growing up in Pakistan, they faced regular threats from Islamic extremists who believed the small dynamic sect to be blasphemous. From their parents, they internalized a lesson that revealing their identity could put them in grave danger. When their family came to Canada as refugees, Samra encountered a whole new host of challenges. Bullies, racism, the threat of poverty, and an arranged marriage. Backed into a corner, their need for a safe space in which to grow and nurture their creative feminist spirit became dire. The men in Samra's life wanted to police them. The women in their life had only shown them the example of pious obedience, and their body was a problem to be solved. So begins an exploration of faith, art, love, and queer sexuality, a journey that takes them to the far reaches of the globe to uncover a truth that was within them all along, a triumphant memoir of forgiveness and family, both chosen and not. We have always been here is a rallying cry for anyone who has ever felt out of place and a testament to the power of fearlessly inhabiting one's truest self. Of the subtweet, Bookless Reads. Shreya, a five-time Lambda Literary Award finalist and author of I'm Afraid of Men, presents a beautifully crafted novel about race, music, and social media. Neela is an underground Canadian musician who has been striving to be a timeless artist for the past eight years. Despite decent reviews of her music, she remains unsatisfied because her artistry isn't being appreciated the way she wants it to be. Rukmini is a new YouTube singer who quickly rises to fame after singing a cover of one of Neela's songs. The two meet and become friends, but Rukmini continues to rise in popularity with her strong social media presence while Neela struggles to find her own spotlight. However, one brief subtweet destroys one of the women's careers overnight and sends the internet into a frenzy for all the world to see. In this timely novel, Shreya speaks to a modern audience with bold cultural insight, confronting the difficulties of being a brown artist and the drastic impact social media can have on pop culture. The Subtweet, written by Vivek Shreya, narrated by Nisha Ahuja. For Whitney Houston. Big Capital uses racism, casteism, and sexism and gender bigotry in intricate and extremely imaginative ways to reinforce itself, protect itself, to undermine democracy, and to splinter resistance. Arundhati Roy. Neela. Neela Devaki was an original. She was reminded of this fact shortly after she stepped out of her cab and into the Fairmont Hotel, the main site for the North by Northeast Festival. Zipping through the masses of musicians, fans, and industry reps, she felt sorry for the chandeliers, which loomed above like golden flying saucers, forced to light up the dull networking that buzzed beneath them. But a conversation between two art students, 
draped in curated thriftware featuring strategically placed rips and holes, brought Neela to a reluctant halt. I was totally working on something like this for my final project. I guess originality really is dead. One of the women sighed, taking photos of herself, duck-faced with a pop-up art installation. Neela skimmed the artist's statement. The frosted toothpick statues of penises were a comment on the current global epidemic of white demasculinization. Why not just hang a red and white flag that said, make art great again? Brevity was the true endangered species. You should still do it. All the good ideas are taken anyways. Isn't that kind of freeing? Replied the other. Neela snorted. She would never offer that sort of comfort to a stunted peer. No wonder she was bored with most of the art she encountered. She considered sharing with these young women that she always knew she was on the verge of invention at the precise moment when originality felt impossible. That instead of surrendering to despair, she would needle in and out and through her brain until an idea surfaced, naked, stripped of predictability and familiarity. That this process often required her to sing a phrase over and over for hours until the syllables carved their own unique melody out of hollow air. She was certain that the reiteration planted the words in her vocal cords so that when she sang them, they carried the imprint of her body. By embedding herself into her song, she muted any risk of passing off mimicry as art. Why wasn't fully committing to creation more desirable than observing what everyone else was doing and doing the same? But defending the sanctity of originality to strangers at an art exhibit would make her seem like an egomaniac, and no one listens to a cocksure woman. Instead, she resumed her course, shunning the other art displays jammed in between information tables towards the elevators in the back. Once inside the ornate elevator, she furiously pushed the kissing triangles button to avoid being invaded by a friendly small talker. When she arrived at the room for the panel, she glared at the race and music human-sized banner. Only someone who thought they didn't have a race could have come up with that title. Unable to differentiate between panel discussions and group therapy sessions, she had almost declined this invitation until she beheld the glimmering word, honorarium. She wasn't in a financial position to refuse this rare offer of compensation. A volunteer modeling last season's lilac gray hair blocked the entrance, wagging the festival brochure at Neela. I'm sorry, but this one is full. Would you like to see the list of the other events scheduled for this afternoon? Neela turned away and stared at the escalator ascending into the sunlight on the main floor. Before she could rush towards it, another volunteer tapped her on the shoulder. Nyla, we're so glad to have you join us today. It's Neela. Good to be here. She lied and turned to face a man who looked like an overgrown boy or a male comedian with white-tipped, near-erupting microvolcanoes under his mustache stubble. Right, of course, Neela, like Sheila, he said, playfully slapping his head. My name is Mikey, by the way. Mickey, she responded, but he didn't hear her as he placed his palm on her back and guided her into the room. She was rarely nervous before an event and was puzzled by her uncharacteristic perspiration. She worried Mikey could feel her sweat through her ruby blouse until she realized that the wetness was coming from his hand. She shrugged casually, but his fingers clung to her, even when she stumbled over the sneakers of the men in graphic tees and chinos who had filled the standing room area in the back of the hotel ballroom. When they reached the stage, Mikey quickly introduced her to the four panelists, three men and one woman, all of whom appeared to be in their 20s. 
They each greeted her with variations of, so honored to meet you. Shut up, you're pretty. Written by Thea Moutonji. Narrated by Gemini. This is a B-Speak Editions audiobook. Dedication to my sisters, Maita and Ochnilla. Chapter 1. Tits for Six. Jolie was my first friend. Her name was actually Julieta. I shortened it to Jolie upon meeting her. I felt it captured her spirit more, her essence. The name came from a song Mother used to sing when we lived in Congo, where it was hot and mosquitoes didn't sting because we coexisted with them. Bebe de mama, surely, surely, surely. Bebe de mama, surely, surely, surely. The song went. Mother stopped singing once we immigrated. She stopped doing many things. But I liked that she had given me this. This song, so that I could now give it to someone else. And Jolie was, in fact, Jolie. Long, blonde hair, defined nose, blue in her eyes, roses in each cheek. Tall, but not defiantly so. She was the one who introduced me to the park. She was responsible for my popularity and my likability. Because she was herself popular and well-liked. And I gained her reputation by proximity. But still, I was the girl next door. Unlike Jolie, I had perfectly ashy elbows and naturally lacked poise. And this was my advantage on Galloway. People could relate to that. As for Jolie, she was simply unattainable. To want a person like her was to want too much from life. To have a person like her was to have everything, and perhaps too soon. When we arrived, Jolie was sitting on our doorstep, as though to check that the newcomers weren't freaks. And then she gave a thumbs up to a bunch of kids watching from the other side of the roundabout. There was another set of low-rise townhomes, peeling and brown, identical to ours. The thumbs-up meant that we were acceptable, that we had passed some unknown street cred test, and Jolie was both curator and writer of said test. She introduced herself as we were unloading the suitcases from the taxi. That's all we had. Suitcases. We were lucky enough that the previous tenants had left behind some furniture and that whoever ran the complex took pity on our poverty and allowed us to claim it as our own. Welcome to Galloway, Jolie said, reaching her hand out to greet my father. As they shook hands, she grimaced a smile at him, stuck her tongue out and winked. Can he come out and play? She asked. We all looked at Junior. Not him, Jolie said. The other one. Loli, my father said. And that's when we all realized she was referring to me. Is she a girl or a boy? Jolie tilted her head. My English was still just so-so, but this I understood. It had become a frequent question. 
though my hair had grown significantly since we landed. Before we left, I was given a buzz cut to match the picture of the boy in the passport I had used to come here. Nobody thought that it would work. I looked too feminine, too soft. Soft nose, soft eyes, soft mouth, soft ears, soft cheeks. But by the time we got to the security gate at the airport, the soldiers were distracted, and nobody questioned me. But for a week after we arrived in Canada, I copied the way my brother walked, the way he ate, yawned, and brushed his teeth. Nobody told me when it was safe to stop pretending. And I found that I enjoyed this very much. I seemed to be more liked, more respected. But it might have been that people who knew what we had to do as refugees pitied me. So they showered me with gifts and compliments, as though any of those things could confirm anyone's sex. But I wasn't confused. I knew who I was. Shut up, you're pretty is a finalist Rogers Writers Trust of Canada Fiction Prize, finalist Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, a Globe and Mail Best Book of the Year. In Taya Mutonji's disarming debut story collection, a woman contemplates her Congolese traditions during a family wedding, a teenage girl looks for happiness inside a pack of cigarettes, a mother reconnects with her daughter through their shared interest in fish, and a young woman decides to shave her head in the waiting room of an abortion clinic. These punchy, sharply observed stories blur the lines between longing and choosing, exploring the narrator's experience as an involuntary one. Tinged with pathos and humor, they interrogate the moments in which femininity, womanness, and identity are not only questioned but also imposed. Shut Up Your Pretty is the first book to be published under the imprint VS Books, a series of books curated and edited by writer-musician Vivek Shreya, featuring work by new and emerging Indigenous and Black writers or writers of color. And of course, you heard Vivek right here on the show with the subtweet. The following book is described as an evocative and richly imagined story of a British Muslim woman's search for love and belonging in two very different worlds. Here now is an excerpt from Kamala Gibbs' Sweetness in the Belly. Sweetness in the Belly by Camilla Gibb, read by Kate Redding. Prologue, Harar, Ethiopia. The sun makes its orange way east from Arabia over a red sea, 
across volcanic fields and desert and over the black hills to the cut and coffee-shrubbed land of the fertile valley that surrounds our walled city. Night departs on the heels of the hyenas. They hear the sun's approach as a hostile ringing, perceptible only to their ears, and it drives them back, bloody-lipped and panic-stricken, to their caves. In darkness they have feasted on the city's broken streets, devouring lame dogs in alleyways and licking eggshells and entrails off the ground. The people of the city cannot afford to waste their food, nor can they neglect to feed the hyenas either. To let them go hungry is to forfeit their role as people on this wild earth and strain the already tenuous ties that bind God's creatures. A hundred years ago, when the city's gates were still closed at night, the key lodged firmly under the sleeping head of a neurotic emir, the hyenas were the only outsiders permitted access after dark. They would crawl through the drainage portals in the city's clay walls. But the gates are splayed open now, have been for decades, a symbol of history's turn against this Muslim outpost, a city of saints and scholars founded by Arabs who brought Islam to Abyssinia in the ninth century, the former capital of an emirate that once ruled for hundreds of miles. For all the fear they inspire, though, if a hyena must die, one hopes it might do so on one's doorstep. Pluck its eyebrows, fashion a bracelet, and you are guaranteed protection from Buddha, the evil eye. Endure the inconvenience of having to step over a hideous corpse baking in the African sun all day, but be assured that by the following morning, thanks to hyenas' lack of inhibitions regarding cannibalism, the street will once again be licked clean. As every day begins, the anguished cries of these feral children grow dim against a rising crescendo of birds quibbling in the pomegranate and lime trees of the city's courtyards. And then the Murzins call, beckoning the city's sleeping populace with a shower of praise for an almighty god. There are ninety-nine of them within the walls of this tiny city. Ninety-nine Murzins for ninety-nine mosques. It takes the culmination of the staggered, near-simultaneous beginnings of a hundred less one to create the particular sound that is heard as godliness in Harar. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat. Or you wouldn't have come here. Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland Part 1 London, England, 1981-1985 Scar Tissue On a wet night in Thatcher's Britain, a miracle was delivered onto the pockmarked pavement behind a decrepit building once known as Lambeth Hospital. Four women standing flanked by battered rubbish bins looked up to a close English sky and thanked Allah for this sign of his generosity. Two women ululated, one little boy, shy and tired, buried his face in his mother's neck, and one baby stamped with a continent-shaped mole tried out her lungs. Her wail was mighty and unselfconscious, and with it she announced that we had all arrived in England. None of us had hitherto had the confidence to be so brazen. I was one of those four women. I trained in this godforsaken building, a gothic nightmare of a place, 
a former workhouse where the poor were imprisoned and divided. Thank you so much for tuning in to The More the Merrier today. And I do hope you check out some of the books that I featured today. They're all from the Toronto Public Library. The website is www.torontopubliclibrary.ca. And all you need is a library card to borrow the books. Thank you so much for listening. Finishing off the show with Cycles by Debbie Young. See you next week. Bye-bye.